Excellent. Uh, we are now live. Well, welcome to the program. I have Daniel Madden, famous for being a superstar debater, endorsed 100% by James White. Uh, two thumbs up. Great guy. So I'm glad to have him on the program to talk to him. Very much respect his opinion. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? It's it's a good night tonight. I took a little dad nap. I don't know if you ever do that after you get home from a long day, and then you just have to like pass out for like thirty minutes, and then you you wake up refreshed. Yeah, and absolutely. So, I don't know about refreshed, but yeah, I definitely take the naps. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as, as, as maybe like once you get into your thirties, you like never fully refreshed from sleeping, or I don't know if that's just me, but uh, that seems to be my experience. So, uh, excellent. You're here tonight uh, to talk about Job, something we probably agree a lot about. And uh, even though there's a lot of strong opinions about things that are said in Job and how they're said and, and a lot of diversity. And so we're going to be looking at Elihu. Uh, is that how you say it? Do you say Elihu? or do you? Yeah, say I think Elihu else? is probably the, the appropriate way to say it. Most people say Elihu, but it's probably Elihu. Well, I'm going to go with Elihu tonight. So uh, Elihu sounds kind of weird to me. So I'll go with that. We're going to just talk about like the crux of his uh, argument. And uh, I do got a paper that I'd like to read a portion of, if that's okay to start with. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I got David Klein's pulled up as well. But uh, this, this one's actually pretty interesting. This is by a guy named McCabe. And uh, for anyone who wants like a pro Elihu voice, because there's a lot of anti-Elihu voices out there. Um, this is a good paper to read to see how he thinks that Elihu narrative fits within the scope of uh, Job. And so he starts out by saying some people claim that Elihu was a theological bigot. And that's his first paragraph. I'm going to kind of skip past that because he, he talks about more views in the, the third paragraph. He says, while not necessarily portraying Elihu as a bigot, Others have argued that Elihu's, Elihu's speeches are essentially a rehashing of the friend's theology. Gary in his agreement with his, Gary is in agreement with his position, but he has additionally asserted that the Elihu speeches are a later interpolation. So like someone added Elihu later to the narrative. So that's pretty common in critical, critical circles that this is a later addition to mm. the text because it doesn't really Fit the text and Elihu is not mentioned in the prologue or or the epilogue and so they think that this is so someone inserted an extra speech into this view which is not I don't think that's McCabe's view it's not Klein's view Klein thinks that Elihu's misplaced within Job he thinks that by the structure and breakdown Elihu's speeches are better placed right after all the friend speeches and Job's speeches come right before God's speeches so he thinks there was a right manuscript swapping that that kind of went on there but he says um mckay views elihu as a forerunner for a modern charismatic christian who desires to lift the suffering into healing confrontation with the almighty rather than presenting elihu as a protagonist anderson suggests that elihu is an educator in a manner similar to god's approach in uh 38.2 elihu it says uh i'm gonna kind of skip four according to anderson elihu gives the human assessment and God, the divine evaluation Robertson. Now this is my favorite view, not because I think it's the most probable, but because it's, it's the funniest. Uh, Robertson views Elihu as providing comic relief from the dialogue. So he views Elihu as a court gesture. That's just making a fool of himself as comic relief to the whole narrative. 
Gordis has indicated that the contribution of Elihu is to be found in his assertion that God uses suffering for disciplinary purposes. This was intended by the Jobian author to supplement the God speeches. Baby views Elihu as a covenant mediator in wisdom dress, and Sire portrays Elihu as essentially a theological hero, a spokesman of grace. So there's a wide, wide diversity of opinions when it comes down to who Elihu is and was and his place in the narrative. Do you, do you find yourself agreeing with any of these positions? Uh, broadly, I, I would agree that um, he he is not necessarily a negative uh, or should be portrayed as a negative uh, character in the in the discourse. Uh, to me, he he makes a lot of arguments that are different from uh, the other three so-called comforters. Um, they tend to argue along the same lines and <clears throat> I think that Elihu kind of picks out some specific things to focus on that they may have missed or he feels that they've missed. Um, the way that it's framed is really that he's, he's kind of frustrated with the fact that these other three couldn't answer Job. And so he, he sees himself as having to no, no, uh, other option other than to, to raise these items because he feels that he has the true wisdom that's going to defeat uh, Job's position. So, <clears throat> yeah, I don't think he's very successful. <laughs> I, I don't think so, but I think that he uh, he's not necessarily um, a negative character in the sense that a lot of the stuff that he says is true, but he may be missing the point. And I think that's really a lot of what's going on in Job is that Job's saying one thing and everyone else is kind of missing his point and they're kind of they just can't get over their own theology in a sense. So Yeah, I, I think so. McCabe, um, in this paper that I have pulled up, he argues that Elihu's a theological foil that serves as a transition from the friends to God. He lays groundwork. He summarizes everything. So he, he acts as a summary of the positions of Job and Job's friends and sets the groundwork for God's response. Uh, there, there's uh, appeals to God's power, which God picks up later. And so it's Elihu's giving kind of half-truths or introductions or preparing people for this grander speech which follows. That's that's how McCabe, McCabe sees Elihu's function in that narrative. Yeah, and I definitely, you definitely see that there are themes or even uh, specific uh sentences that are, are that are put forward by Elihu that are almost identical to to the line of thought that God will bring later as far as um you know the basis of how Job could question him based on the, the fact that he's the creator and, and all of the wisdom and the fact that Job is unaware of all of the things behind all of creation it's really in the same line of thought that Elihu uh is presenting uh, especially in uh let's see in it's like uh i'm sorry no yeah go on uh we got our first question he says who's this guy he says i'm late who is not christopher <laughs> fisher this is james white endorsed extraordinary debater daniel madden so look him up uh he's got at least one debate online that's pretty interesting. probably just one <laughs> worth watching <laughs> so i would highly endorse it yeah. So anyway, I, what I was saying is in verses like uh, in verse 14, uh, 13 and 14, just this idea that that all of the world is is basically um, comes from God. It's not something that's been given over to him. 
and that, that his wisdom is basically behind all of justice and all of these things. Those, those same ideas are kind of picked up later by God. Um, so I, I agree that uh, he does kind of serve that role as far as uh, in the narrative. He's kind of a, a bridge between the theology of the others and what God will eventually answer to. Yeah, we have a comment that he says, I think Elihu might have been a young prophet also. God rebukes Job's friends, but says nothing about Elihu. Some commenters kind of turn it, that on its head and say, he's just not mentioned in the rest of the book. And so he's he's like a ridiculous character that they ignore or insignificant character that's just dropped and not even considered. And so yeah. that evidence could go either way. I could see the evidence that He's kind of endorsed that he's not included in the reprimand of the friends. But I could also see a position that oh, I could see the, the critical position, even that he's a later addition to the text because he's not mentioned. I could see that point, but I could also see how they might say he's just a character that's ignored because he's insignificant. So, I yeah, I think those are the two main positions. Basically, one is that either, which I feel is an argument from silence to say that because he wasn't. Uh, rebuked alongside the others, then then God must have agreed with him. Uh, I don't I don't think that's a very strong argument. Like I said, I think it's an argument from silence. But the other one is kind of conjecture as well. Um, but it does fit in line with you know the the idea, especially in this culture, that a young man basically didn't have a say in, in these kind of uh, discourses anyway. So there is a sense in which that could be possible that he was just overlooked by God because he really shouldn't have been speaking anyway. Yeah, let's really quick just kind of read his introduction to the story, the narrative portion. Uh, so Job has three friends, and three friends give three kind of similar, kind of different answers as to why Job is suffering. And Job sits through this, and he fights against it. It says, so these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And so they just got frustrated that Job is just holding on, and Job is not giving into their arguments. And it says, then Elihu, son of Barchel, the Brewerite, Berzite, I don't know any of these names, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. Anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. So that's going back to that, that elder veneration in that, in mm -hmm. the, in that society. And, it, and when he saw there's no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And then he said, then he starts, he starts this a huge speech saying who he is, and he summarizes the friends, he summarizes summarizes Job, and then he has his say. And so we're gonna skip forward to chapter 34 tonight. So I think that might get to the crux of his argument. Is is that your understanding, or am I just making that out? Uh, yeah, I mean, he makes some uh, some arguments in uh, 33 as well, but I think 34 is is kind of where he really gets into um, more classical argumentation as far as you can clearly see that he's, he's trying to uh, answer specific accusations or ideas that Job's brought up, and he's going to try to set the, the record straight with Job in 34. Yeah, we have a comment. I think Elihu wrote the book of Job. Which that would be interesting if that was the case. So, uh, Job 34, 1, Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. 
Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable. I am without transgression. So he, he seems to start this this whole speech by, by it, it's a good thing to do to say, hey, listen to what I'm going to tell you. What I'm telling is truthful because it's priming your listener to agree with you, basically. It's like, okay, if I if I deny what this guy's now going to say, then I'm denying truth. And so he's, he's, he's mentally priming his audience is what I see going on there. Is that... Yeah, there's a couple of things I would just mention here. Um, number one, when it says uh, you wise men, there's some dispute, obviously, whether that's just directly talking to the other uh, men involved in this conversation. But I think it is more of an appeal to, to all wise men, kind of like when Jesus says, whoever has a ear, let him hear. Um, it, it's an idea of like, if you're wise, then, then listen to what I'm going to say. And again, this kind of harkens back to him trying to justify his position. Um, I think he wants to always appeal to kind of a higher authority than himself. Uh, so he, he uses a lot of this kind of speech because he's a younger man, I think, to to kind of bolster his argumentation. And so he appeals to all wise men if they'd hear him. And then uh, in addition to that, in these verses that you just read, he's really giving a, a summary of what he's going to argue against. He's going to lay out um, Job's position uh in a, in a summarized fashion. And then he's going to kind of go after it point by point. Yeah. So five and six, he seems to summarize some of Job's previous speech to specifically indicate what exactly he's responding to in Job. He says, Job is saying, so this is Job's argument. He's framing himself, putting himself in Job's feet in his shoes. I am in the right and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable although I am without transgression. Would you say that's an accurate summary of Job's position from Elihu? I think it is an accurate summary. I think most commentators agree. I think Klein's as well as Hartley both basically agree that it's a, it's a fair assessment of Job's um, position, even though there may be slight differences in the words used. I, Elihu does quote Job a lot, and sometimes he misquotes him a, a little bit, but for the most part, I think everyone's kind of agreed that this is a pretty accurate assessment of what Job's position is. Mm -hmm. I think so as well. He says, uh, what is a man like Job who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God, which really harkens back to a lot of phrases in the Bible when we, when we see practical atheism practical atheism is god doesn't see god doesn't hear i could do what i want and god doesn't respond and job who for all intents of this story i think is uh yahweh worshiper uh, he he's he's repeating these arguments given by who are people who are typically atheists or non-theists or anti anti-yahwehists in the rest of the bible which i find is interesting yeah, I think it's fair to say that that he he does in in certain ways align with that that line of reasoning. Um, you know, the way I look at Job in general is kind of it's not that all of these people have different theology. In fact, Job multiple times will even respond to uh, the other the main three uh, opponents by saying, "Hey, look, like all the stuff you're saying, I know that. Like we have the same theology." And so what I see Job as really is theology meets real life. Like when 
when what's really going on in Job's life is clashing with the theology that they've always believed. And so I, I think it's, it's really a picture of Job struggling to make his theology match what he's really experiencing. And that's why they talk past each other so much because the other four are not experiencing what Job's experiencing and Job's trying to figure it out. And he's kind of like verbalizing the struggle in a way that <clears throat> in many times sounds like he is an unbeliever um, of the way that he questions God, at least in the minds of these people because of their theology. Yeah, they, they take it uh, really, really poorly that God, uh, Job will demand answers from God. God, listen to me. My blood cries out against you. These types of statements from Job and the friends don't like that one bit. And so Elihu, I think, also is one of the friends who are enraged by this kind of talking. And I think that is uh, part of what we're, we're reading here. Uh, what is a man like Job who drinks up scoffing like water? Like he, he just drinks it up and it refreshes him. Uh, he's, I, th I think that's some, some sort, of, sort of idea going on in that verse. Skipping down to 10. Therefore, hear me. This is him putting himself in Job's shoes again. You men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will replay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. So uh, what's your take on what's going on there? Well, for starters, he starts oh, off with there, therefore. Um, and uh, I think the, the commentators kind of give a, a lot of different answers as to what that's hearkening back to. But I think it's really, uh, he's just characterized Job. He said, look, Job is like these evildoers. And, and when he says he's like uh, these workers of iniquity, it's specifically because of, and he quotes Job, he says, it profits a man nothing uh, when he uh, is pleased with God. And essentially saying that when a righteous man does righteous, it doesn't benefit him any. Um, and so that's why he's, he's saying like, he's just like the the evildoer in that sense that he sees no reason to do good or no reason not to do evil and so after he's characterized job in that way he says now therefore since like basically yeah. since job is this way now if you're wise instead you'll listen to me like this is job's argument and he's he walks with evildoers and because he walks with evildoers instead of listening to his arguments now instead if you're wise you'll turn and listen to me. And then he really just lays out the crux of his argument. It's really going to be the, the bedrock of all of his argumentation in uh, these few verses where he asks a rhetorical question, um, you know, uh, or well, he states it, you know, far be it from God to do wickedness and from almighty to do wrong. And uh, that's basically his idea that if, if you are doing what's wrong, then you're going to be, receiving justice for doing wrong and conversely if you're doing what's right you'll you'll receive blessing that's really what he's going to get at in this section is this retributive uh idea that that we we reap what we sow essentially yeah so uh here and now retributive justice retributive justice is the idea that your actions in life will manifest back it, uh, if you're if you do evil then evil will come upon you if you do good, then good will come upon you, that people get what they deserve, kind of like a system of karma. So that's retributive justice, mm -hmm. which I, I guess in reality, that appeals very much to me, a retributive justice that people should get what they deserve. But it, it doesn't seem to be our experience too often in life where, when you see wicked people prospering and, and doing really well, like Stalin died like 
as right. an old man. Whole Pot died as an old man. It's like, ugh, how often do we see? Retributive justice. In the are, are, are you with me? I think we froze for a second there. Yeah, we're we're frozen for a second there. Um, yeah, I, I agree, and that's really that's why I say I, I kind of see this as as theology clashing with real life. Like they have this idea of, and, and especially Elihu, maybe more than anyone else in this entire book, he he's absolutely ardent that that in every situation that man receives uh, due recompense for for his actions. And that's kind of Job's whole contention is that, well, yeah, I kind of believe that too, but that's not what I'm experiencing. And if we really think about it, we look around, we see that that's not necessarily the case. And I think Elihu's going to give some some uh, reasoning behind that and, and maybe uh, kind of modify that position a little bit, that it's not always swift justice, um, but that God is always uh, attentive to what's going on and there will always be recompense for what whatever is done. And I, and I, I would say, Job, go ahead. Oh yeah, I I see Job as maybe once these evils started coming upon him, that's when he's come to the realization that elsewhere in the world these unjust people prosper because uh, you, I I think that's not introduced until he gets really worked up throughout the story. The, these these little facts showing up showing up. So I don't think he would say this in his time of blessing when he has all his kids and all his livestock and right. all his wealth and all his health. This is induced from introspection during these hard times. Is what where yeah, I'm seeing absolutely. Job is getting that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why they all talk past each other is because these other people, these other men that are that are coming against him are not experiencing the things he's experiencing. Uh, we have no reason to believe that they're suffering in any way like he is. And so, yeah, it's really his his, his own experiences is bringing him to confront these ideas and see how they square with reality. He says, uh, of a truth, God will not do wickedly. The Almighty will not pervert justice. That's the retributive here and now justice. It's not like, I don't think they're talking about like heaven and hell. Like if you just do evil... Then you get hell at the end, or you, if you do good, right. you get it. It's like a here and now. Job, you're suffering currently. It's because you got some hidden sin, or future sin, or current sin, or you're just being uh, refined right now in anticipation of some future not yet realized sin. All those types of arguments we see within this book. Uh, 14 says, if he should set his heart to it and gather himself, his spirit, and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Did I did I skip a verse? I might have skipped a verse. Who gave him charge over the earth and who laid on him the whole world? And so this, this seems to be saying this is about God's power, that if God's not <clears throat> out there uh, sustaining the world, God could just like destroy the world in an instant. Is that what you're getting? Yeah, I think this is a pretty complex argument. Um, it, it again, it goes back to that bedrock idea of the fact that that God does always maintains justice. But Elihu's idea of justice is um, that it, it's kind of a one for one thing. But what he's uh, doing is he's appealing back he, when he 
starts off, he says, far be it from God to do wickedness and for the Almighty to do wrong. Um, he's starting with this idea that it's impossible for God to do it. And then he kind of, he lays out this idea that, that God is not dependent on man, but rather man is dependent on God, I think. Um, so he, he shows God as being, um, you know, he says, who gave him authority over the earth? Obviously, a rhetorical question, meaning no one, that no man gave him authority. Yeah. Um, and and when uh, this NASB says, and who gave him uh, or who has laid on him the whole world, but other versions, basically, like who is given the world, like all of the world's justice system, like who has given him rule over it? And the idea is that no one has. It's it's him that, that has established all these things. And so as we get down to verse 14 and 15, where he says that, hey, basically, everyone's alive and, and well because of God's breath and his spirit. And if he would take that breath back, everything would perish in an instant. And so it's this idea that while God depends on no one for his position, as mankind, we can do nothing. We can't even live apart from the provision coming from God. And so it's I think it's uh, kind of contrasting those two things. Which is interesting because Job's argument elsewhere seems to be that God is neglecting or shirking his duty in respect to justice, which is the complete opposite of Elihu's position that all things happen and all things are highly regulated by God. And if those, if God weren't to highly regulate the world that we see around us, then God would be unjust. Is, is mm -hmm. that your reading as well? Yeah, and I think uh, I can't remember if it was Kleins or or uh, Hardly that uh, basically says that it, it's this idea that uh, it's kind of an obscure argument, but the idea that if people are alive, like because we see that people are alive, then it's it's this idea it's the idea that God is just because He's allowed the righteous people to live, and anyone who's died, it's because essentially they they were not living righteously if they died out of turn, you know, not by natural causes. I don't know if he's really getting at that there, there, but that's uh, some of the commentators would take it there. That this is an idea that the fact that we see people prospering, that the good, good receive good and the, the evil die, that we were seeing God working out his justice in the very uh, fabric of all that we see. I, I do remember uh, there was a sermon I was listening to where uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was brought up and uh, he was an evil guy who killed and ate people. And then uh, he went to prison and then he was murdered in prison by uh, fellow inmates. And the person's like, see, justice is served. <laughs> Which the, the joke is that our criminal justice system actually failed. And uh, this evil person just died due to kind of natural consequences of his actions outside of the justice system. Right. Definitely and not so, a good, good argument for, for justice yeah, yeah, justice system does not work. Uh, 17, it says, uh, well, well, 16, you have understanding. Hear this. Listen to what I say. One, shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards to rich more than poor, for they are the work of his hands. In a moment they die. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away. And the mighty are taken away by no human hand. For his eyes are in the way of man, and he sees all his steps. So that is actually very interesting. So it seems like he's attributing 
like death of nobles to God's designs, partial or fully, one of the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I think the main thrust of this argument. So he's already he's already established uh, the retributive thing, but here he moves into. Um, he starts out with, uh, shall one who hates justice rule? Basically asking a question that probably makes more sense to them um, and the way that they looked at things, but that that basically the, the whole idea of ruling as a sovereign, as a king or a, a prince is the role of, of carrying out justice. So an unjust person in their minds, in a sense, can't be a ruler. Um, not a not a right ruler and so to impugn god to say that god was not just as the almighty one as he calls him the the righteous mighty one uh is to to basically call into question god's right to rule um because if he's not just then he's also not uh the mighty ruler um and then he goes on and a lot of like when i first read through this i don't know it's the just the way that it's laid out on my page but it it seems like you're it, it's asking questions like who says to a king worthless one but what it's saying is it's a it's a statement about god it's describing god and god says to these people um worthless one he he's the one that calls nobles wicked and and kings worthless one and the idea is that he doesn't show partiality to any of his created people he's not a partial judge um he's so just that whether you're a king or a prince or a peasant um justice is still there for you because he it he calls the kings out for what they are. If they're wicked, he calls them wicked. If the princes are worthless, they, he calls them worthless. Yeah, so uh, verse 21, for his eyes are on all the ways of man, and he sees all steps. I got a funny story about this. Well, I don't know if it's too funny, but uh, I went to the Society of Biblical Literature. It's like an annual conference where a bunch of scholars get together, and David mm -hmm. Kleins was there, who I love, okay. I absolutely adore. And so I went to his speech, and the funny thing is his speech, he's put in with all these scholars of like the Akkadian language or something like that. And so they all have their speeches on like Akkadian stuff. And, and he's talking about Hebrew grammar. And so they all hated the speech because they're like, why did he get lumped in with us? Because the organizers had no idea where to lump them. But I asked right. David Kleins, I said, you know, in Zechariah, it talks about the eyes of God and there's, there's seven eyes and, and they wander the earth watching men. And in Revelation, those seven eyes seem to be associated with angels. Uh, I said uh, in, in Genesis, when it talks about the eyes of the Lord, Noah's found righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Could that possibly is could that possibly be angels? And he's like, no, I don't think so. So it might <laughs> nah. <laughs> yeah, he's like, no, he didn't give like a real reason. He says, like, no, I don't think so. Yeah, but that would kind of apply here. The eyes here could be could be the angels as we see eyes are used for angels elsewhere in the bible but it's probably like just general uh, surveillance of mankind something like yeah, that. yeah i i think this is obviously probably where we would maybe fall in a you know come out differently as far as the way we see this uh with our our views on uh god's knowledge and everything um i think what's uh and typically the way it's broken down is from 21 to 30 um, as far as this argument or this this uh, section here. Um, but he's really going to just get into the idea that God is able to, he, he knows everything, basically. He knows everything that is going on in these people's lives. And therefore, he he's not required 
to do further investigation before he carries out his justice. And this is really an argument against Job because Job keeps asking for a trial, essentially. He's like, if I could just speak to God, if I could just plead my case, if we just had a, a mediator, um, then I could, I could prove that I'm right. And essentially what Elihu is arguing here is like, hey, God just like deposes rulers. He, he takes one down and puts another one up and he never asks anyone's opinion in doing so. And if he can do it to a king, it's kind of like an argument from uh, the greater to the lesser. If he can do this with kings and rulers, how much more can he do it with you? Um, he can do whatever he likes and, and he does it in a way that is hidden to us. Um, but he does it because he has perfect knowledge of these people and the events surrounding him. Yeah, I, I do find it interesting. I don't disagree with anything you said. Uh, verse 22, there is no gloom or deep darkness where the evildoers may hide themselves. In ancient Near East religions, uh, visual omniscience was typically uh, ascribed to the light. And so gods would be watching from the heavens, they wouldn't necessarily see through clouds. So within the book of Job, it might actually be this verse, but there's a verse that says that he sees through clouds. Um, and in Ezekiel, you find an interesting passage in which people try to hide themselves from God by going into a dark cavern because their idea of God's omniscience was it can be blocked by things like roofs. There's, there's a temple in Greece where people made oaths before Jupiter in Rome, uh, so it's in Rome where it's an open open atmosphere, so that Zeus or Jupiter can look in and visually see this oath being made, and then enforce it. And those oaths were made during the day because the ancient Near East perception was God's vision could be blocked. Which this seems to be a critique of those types of ancient Near Eastern ideas. Yeah, I, no I, I can certainly see that here. I mean, he. he he specifically addresses those issues. I mean, the ideas of shadows, deep darkness, shadows, um, that there's basically nothing that is, is able to keep God from, from seeing what's going on. He says, for God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. So that goes back to what you were saying, that there's no need for a trial. God has all the information. You're not going to be offering him new things. He shatters the mighty without investigation, sets other in their place. Thus, knowing their works, he overturns them in the night. They are crushed. He strikes them for their witness in a place for all to see because they have turned aside from following him and have no regard for any of his ways. This seems to be a subtle attack on Job. And he, it's like uh, he strikes them suddenly. It's visible for everyone mm -hmm. to see, kind of like you, Job. So what's yeah, going exactly. on, Job? Right. Well, you, you, you meet this model. Yeah, what's exactly. Yeah, and the fact that Job is demanding demanding a hearing, and he's basically saying, "Hey, man, he he does this all the time, and you're in the exact same boat. So why do you think that you deserve a hearing?" Mm -hmm. Say, <clears throat> because of, they have turned aside from following him, have no regard for any of his ways, so that they cause the the, the, the ironic thing about all these speeches is we're given the reason why Job is suffering all these things, and it's it's not like a hidden sin. I, so mm -hmm. all the accusations of sin, the the reader, we we take we take issue with. It's, it's it it kind of stings me in a, right. in a bad way anytime I read these accusations against Job for a secret sin. I I think that's purposeful that the reader is supposed to feel that way when these accusations are leveled, 
And it's for that reason we were led into the real reasons at the start of the entire book of Job. Yeah, So absolutely. that we could emp empathize, em empathize or sympathize with Job. Mm -hmm. So that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him. He heard the cry of the afflicted. When he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him? Whether it be a nation or a man. That the godless man should not reign. He should not ensnare the people. For as anyone said to God, I have borne punishment. I will not offend anymore. Teach me what to do, what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. So what's your take on that? Well, so up in... Uh... Let's see, verses uh, 27 through 30. Um, so it, it gives a, a reason for why God would strike down um, a ruler or a, a person that he is determined to be worthy of. It's because they've turned away from his way. So this kind of goes back to the retributive thing that um, they're basically getting what they deserve. Um, and... What's interesting in verse 29 is says, when he keeps quiet, who can condemn him? And when he hides his face, who can behold him? And that's kind of another dig at Job saying, hey, like you're complaining that you can't get, uh, you know, a trial or you can't be heard or you don't see God. Um, it seems like he's hardened himself against you or he turned his face away from you. He's not listening to you. And, and he's saying, hey, this is the way he deals with nations and men. And he does it for a purpose. The purpose that he does is, is so that godless men won't rule and that he would not um, snare the people or, or trap the people or, or bring harm to the people. And ba basically, this is God's way because he knows everything and because these men turn away from him, he's carrying out justice, uh, even though it's in a way that we don't see. And, and it's, it's right for him to do so. Yeah, it seems to actually echo a little bit of God's actual response to Job, which involves look at this complex world around us uh you're 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 a very small part of it and so you you don't have the data set that i do uh, you don't right. under, you, you're you're not controlling the world like i am and so it's it's just like you're you don't really have standing because you don't understand the full picture mm -hmm. and that it seems to be tangentially kind of the same thing that elihu is saying here yeah i agree uh, so so 31 for, has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment. I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I've done iniquity, I will do it no more. I think uh, quite a few people have said that, right? Yeah, a lot a lot have, but um, what I was going to say here is most uh, commentators agree that this is bad, a bad translation um, to say for has anyone said to God. Instead, um, I should get the... Uh, the actual verbiage, but essentially Kleins as well as others would say that um, this isn't this isn't properly translated as for has anyone said to God, but instead it's uh, Elihu is saying you ought to say to God. Um, in other words, this should be the way you should respond to God, that you should say, I, I have been um, misled um, and, and I will not offend anymore. Okay, so um, I got Kleins translation pulled up. Klein's yeah, Klein's, I believe, goes that route. He says, Indeed, you shall say to God, I was misguided. I will not offend again. What I do not see, do teach me. I have done if, if I have done wrong, I will do it no more. So this is a call for how God or how Job should repent in front of God. 
Right. Yeah. And so it's very confusing with a lot of the translation to start saying, for has anyone said to God, because that just really leads you astray. I think that the idea here is Elihu's basically made a case saying, hey, God is just. It's the, it's the basis of his rule is his justice. You see how he deals with all of these people. He does it how he likes because he knows everything. There's no need for him to to have a hearing. And so because of all that, this is how you should respond to him, Job. You should say, you know what? I was misguided. I was wrong. And if I've offended you, I won't do it anymore. Um, if I've done iniquity, I won't do it again. Yeah. The thing about Hebrew is what I've, I've kind of gathered <coughs> from all my, all my years of life is that uh, it's a very complex language and the interpretation is very contextual. And so you'll see very differing translations from the same Hebrew text. It's not like there's variants and people are picking their favorite variant. It's all the mm -hmm. same Hebrew text and different people are just translating it different ways because it's a complex language. Yeah, and in this specific case, the issue that Kleins brings up is that um, the majority of these translations that we, we have are taken from the Masoretic text that has the Alpha winnings. And so his, his argument is that in this case, um, especially in the uh, 31B, where it says, I have borne chastisement in the NASB, that it should say I've been misled or misguided, that these the word is that it's the same word in hebrew but the masoretes put vowel pointings that were incorrect and so a lot of these uh words get translated over based on the masoretic text and his argument is if it was vocalized different it's actually a different word that would mean misled misguided or beguiled um, rather than chastisement yeah so i think on. it's uh michael heiser who says that the vowels that are added in the masoretic are basically a commentary on the original text so right it's yeah it's interpretive so it's it's their opinion of what what uh what these words point to what the, these words mm -hmm. mean so uh going on to 33 he will he then make a repayment to suit you because you reject it for you must choose and not i therefore declare what you know men of understanding will say to me and the wise man who hears me will say job speaks without knowledge his words are without insight what would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like a wicked man, <laughs> like wicked men. Oh man, for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Oh man, this is uh, kind of heartbreaking knowing knowing the context of, of what's going on here. Right. Yeah, and so, yeah, that the verse 33, shall he, basically, should, should he pay Job back on job's terms rather than on on god's terms like should job be the the arbiter that says you know what you've done me wrongly and and should god pay him back and so this is a kind of a it's a rhetorical question from elihu regarding job saying hey should should god pay you back on your terms um but then he he leaves it open and says basically like hey choose between what what i've said and and the the line of you were already on it's your choice he's kind of like pulling himself out and saying hey it's your choice i've given you the truth now it's up to you to to choose the right thing are you going to respond in the way that i've just instructed you to or are you going to continue on in your arrogance yeah so the interesting thing is that job is right in in a lot of what job says according to Kleins, Kleins Kleins makes the case that job was partially right and i think uh, mccabe does as well uh the paper that we read at first Job has partial rightness. So it's not like everything Job says should be rejected or thrown out. He's a righteous person in, in the story.
And so he, uh, God does criticize Job several times for speaking without knowledge, but that doesn't mean that everything he says, Job says, is wrong or to be rejected. He is treated in the epilogue as a, a, still a hero in the story. Absolutely, yeah. And so I think a lot of these words that uh, Elihu brings against Job in these last four verses are, are really unfounded. Um, he appeals again to wise men or men of understanding, and he kind of uses them as like a third-party validation for what he's saying. So he takes his ideas. I believe uh, this is what he's doing. He's taking his own thoughts, and because he's not a man of standing, he's going to appeal to these theoretical wise men, and he's going to put his own thoughts on their lips. And so he he basically makes these men, these men that theoretically exist, all wise men, to say, hey, men of understanding will say, um, Job speaks without knowledge and his words are without wisdom. He should be tried to the limit because he answers like wicked men um, and that he adds rebellion to his sin um, because uh, I think clients translate this again. The collapse thing is, is basically like he, he obscures or he casts doubt on on the truth. Like in our presence, he, he's bring, brought into question the real truth um, as to what's going on. And so he's He's not only has he potentially sinned against God somewhere along the line, but in all of his argumentation, he's rebelled against God. Yeah, the, the accusations he made. A few interesting things. He says that he, he multiplies his words against God, but God never treats Job like an enemy that was profaning his name. And so that mm -hmm. that sentence seems to be incorrect on Elihu's part. And I think I think this is a rhetorical move. So if you're ever in a debate with people, let's say it's about getting a, a vaccine, they'll say, well, all the scientists agree <laughs> exactly. with me. If, right. if you don't get the vaccine, you just reject the science. And so it's a rhetorical move to say, all the wise men, they listen to me. Wise men, if, if you're smart, if you're intelligent, yep. the things I say, you should internalize. So yeah, or how about the scholarship says? <laughs> the scholarship <laughs> that, that's my says, favorite one. Ever, just I, all the scholars say. All know, the which scholars of course means nothing. <laughs> which very rarely do scholars agree on anything. Um, in my experience, right. you can find scholars <laughs> taking any position on almost any issue. So it's it's like, do yeah. does it does does the scholars? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but so I I do see him as young and hot headed as people often portray Elihu. And so part of that hot headedness is this overreaction or hyper hyperbolic claims against Job and Joe Job's sin situation. Yeah, I think to be fair, I mean, I, I think that much of what Job said is potentially incorrect. And I think that when, when, uh, when God eventually, when he, he brings into question the other three and he condemns them for their words and, and says that Job is going to make sacrifice on their behalf. It, he says, because you have not spoken truthfully about me like my servant Job has. And I think more than anything, he's referring to Job's response at the end, more so than a lot of what was going on during the suffering. It's when Job realizes the truth and he says, I'll shut my mouth. I, I didn't understand. Now I understand. It's really more about that response that God's saying is correct, more so than than all of the the various things that came out of Job's mouth along the way. Did you ever read uh, David Klein's take on uh, Job's repentance? I haven't. I have not read that. No. 
uh, he takes the idea that Job is just withdrawing his repentance is withdrawing his lawsuit against God in in abject. Uh, he's he's just throwing his hands up like, okay, I, there's nothing I can do. Uh, you're too powerful. My lawsuit's not going to win. So he's just re- revoking his lawsuit in frustration. That's that's mm-hmm. his his reading of that, which I think is plausible. But that's uh, not our not really our topic of discussion tonight. Yeah, actually... I think it is definitely in, in theme with what's going on. I mean, much of what's going on here is really like a, a courtroom scene. You know, each different speaker kind of sets everyone else up as the jury and they kind of take the, the role of the prosecutor and obviously the defense. But do, do you see, I, I see Elihu as he's putting himself and trying to talk for God. He says, God's not here to defend yeah. himself. And so I'm here, I'm the mediator and I'm going to tell you what God thinks. Yeah, even appealing and saying things like, I've been filled with the Spirit of God. Basically, these aren't even my words. Like, this is what God's placed in me, and I can't keep them in. I, I'm The Spirit constrains me. I must speak these things. And so, yeah, he definitely sees himself as as a voice of God in the situation. And so we'll, we'll try tonight in our Bible study tonight not to exceed an hour. So we'll go through Job 35 a little bit. And then just kind of summarize our thoughts and ideas about the text. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. Sounds good. Uh, 35.1. And Elihu answered and said, do, do you think this, or to be just, do you say it is my right before God that you asked, what advantage have I? How am I better off if I had sinned? So uh, I think that's quoting Job. Job's like, you know, I, I didn't even sin. I, if, if I would have sinned, it would be no different than, than what's happening right now. I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds, which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you're righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness, a son of man. So what do you take about this argument? Well, uh, for one, it's it's very much in line with God's uh, presentation later, uh, Yahweh's presentation when he comes back and speaks to, to Job, <clears throat> this I- idea of really the holiness of God in the sense of the separation, that God is, is so much different than mankind, um, that, uh, you know, that there's such a vast difference as the clouds are above the, the, uh, the earth. And basically that, that the issue here is not um, so much that, that Job's sins can do anything to God or his righteousness could benefit God. Like his righteousness couldn't benefit God and his sins could not bring any harm to God. That, that the realm of, of sin and doing righteous actions is really carried out amongst mankind. It's not something that would affect God and, and sway him one way or the other. Which is interesting because I, th- I think the book of Job starts with God saying, hey, look at this servant who's righteous and good. So God does seem to, within the text of Job, gain some benefit or have some awareness or have some Certainly pleasure. has a concern, yeah. And so Elihu seems to be making like an ant theology. We are just mere ants. And uh, you think your righteousness does anything? You think your sin does anything? It doesn't affect God. You're just you're just an ant. You're just so small that God doesn't care about. Which the irony is that God is intimately involved with this entire situation. 
Yeah, and um, some of this harkens back, I think, to verse uh, two, where he's saying, um, where he's kind of accusing Job of pleading the case that his righteousness is better than God's. And so I think Elihu is saying, like, look, God's God's way up here, you're way down here, and yet you're claiming that your righteousness is at a higher level than God's. So I, I think there's some of that going on too, that to to be able to question God's righteousness when you are such a lowly creature compared to him. Yeah, basically an appeal to authority would be probably a correct mm-hmm. framing of this. Because of the multitude of, oppress- of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is God, my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil man. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. That's interesting. So he's basically saying, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that God does respond to prayers, but he doesn't necessarily respond to prayers because of the evilness of people. No? Uh, yeah, um, I'm just I'm just reading over this again. Um Yeah, again, I mean, this this whole line of argumentation is kind of it, it's it's in line with everything Elihu has said. Essentially, like all you got to do is just look at the way things are, and we know that God is just kind of from the way we see nature work. Um, <clears throat> it's not a, in my mind, it's not a strong argument from a, a Western sense. Like we don't see a lot of these arguments as they're not like a syllogism or anything, but it there appeals to different things that maybe all of these men held to be true. And so, um, you know, a lot of these, they don't seem like really strong arguments, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, God doesn't re- respond to evil prayers. I'd say generally God wouldn't, we wouldn't expect God to respond to the prayers of evil people. I'd yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's, that's born. Yeah, that's born out in, uh, I mean, there are multiple uh, references in scripture that uh, the prayers of the wicked are, you know, are not, essentially not heard. Um, like you said, generally speaking, it uh, doesn't mean that God can't choose to to listen to the prayer of someone, but the general idea is that God is is attentive to the, the prayers of the righteous and not so much to the prayers of the wicked. All right, let's finish off uh, this, this chapter here, and then uh, we could uh, do a quick summary. It says, <clears throat> Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him that the case is before him and you are waiting for him. And now because his anger does not punish and he does not take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. So what's his argument here? Uh, Again, there's more insulting, of course. Yeah, you know, this, it goes again back to the idea that, um, you know, a couple of the things uh, he addresses, and he says, and now because he's not visited in his anger, nor has he acknowledged transgression uh, well, so Job opens his mouth emptily. This this idea that, um, you know, that because we don't see God working justice in the way that we would approve of it, that somehow he's not doing it. And so Job, because he doesn't understand how God is carrying out justice, is opening up his mouth and speaking these empty words. Uh, it's similar to 
you know, in the New Testament, uh, when talk, and Peter talks about, you know, God is not slow in uh, bringing things about because a year is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like it, or a, sorry, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. This idea that that when we look at God and we think He's slow in carrying about uh, His plan or His justice, that it's uh, it's not the case, and that's kind of what Elihu's saying is like, hey, just because you don't understand God's timeline here. Um, it doesn't give you a basis to open your mouth and speak these words against God. I, I think in verse 13, he's insulting Job again. He says, God doesn't hear like wicked people, empty pleas. And guess what? That's the reason God's not appearing before you because you're that wicked person. Do, do yeah, you see yeah, that at absolutely. all? Yeah, absolutely. Even, yeah, with the whole thing, with the idea of him not hearing the prayers of the wicked, like, hey, you're suffering here and we've witnessed you crying out to God and you know, over these these weeks or whatever of your torment and all of your losses, we've seen you praying to God and you you claim that God is turning his head away, that that he's not attentive to your to your appeals and essentially saying, I have you considered the fact that maybe you're a, you're an evil person, you know, and that's why he's, he's not doing it. <laughs> have you considered you're an evil person? Yeah. Uh, I think that's funny. The juxtaposition. So you get like good statements from Elihu about God's power and, and God's uh, justification and, and his righteousness and uh, how God administers the world. And then it's just juxtaposed against these downright things that we just ought to reject. Oh, Job, you're wicked, and that's why God's not responding. Uh, and so it, it's almost like an emotional roller coaster kind of, kind of reading these things, how this is laid out. Yeah, and you so, almost get the idea. It's sometimes like he's, he's on Job's side, and then in the next verse he's kind of like like reveals like i i've been i've been speaking kind of like i'm on your side but my real thoughts are that i think you're actually have wicked <laughs> thoughts or you've done some simple things that we don't know about you know you're like a secret kinda, evil guy yeah and job's just sitting there in pain with boils like what what, right. what am i doing here? why why is this ha I'm, I'm having to endure these speeches in addition to everything i'm suffering exactly. so I do see the case that uh, Robertson Robertson makes that he's that Illy who's a gesture figure. I don't agree with it, but I, I do see where he's coming from in the fact that there's these bold uh, striking claims that we know are false. And, uh, and so, but I, I, I think it'd be wrong to characterize the entire Elihu's speech all as that. So I think the McCabe position that he's acting as a foil to God and preparing the reader for uh, McCabe describes Elihu as anticlimactic. We're expecting after the Job speeches for God to step in and, and set everything right. But then we get this random guy out of nowhere, uh, just kind of reiterating some of the same things and reiterating some of the things God uh, is going to say. So saying things in advance, preparing mm -hmm. us for God's arguments and then intermixing it with a little bit of wrongness. And so it's it's like a foil character. Like, uh, I, I don't know if you know what a foil is in literature. Like, like you have Sherlock Holmes and you have Watson, and Watson's mm -hmm. not as smart as Sherlock Holmes. And so if right. you put that not smart character next to the smart character, the smart character looks a lot smarter. Yeah, and it's so, like the black background behind the diamond. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Foil, foil character. Um, I, I do see good arguments that Elihu does function like that. Some people take Elihu as this is the voice of reason who tells us how it is and we should listen to all his words. 
I don't think that's the case. I think we need to take what he says with a little bit of grain of salt. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think he has a complete understanding. And he, he's operating just like all of these men. He's operating off of a lot of assumptions. And I think he also just doesn't see, like I said before, it's it's a collision of reality and theology where, you know, it's basically they have their system, systematic theology that they all hold to. And they're so rigid in regard to it that they can't understand that there might be more to it than than what's in their theology, than what their theology allows for. And I really think that's kind of the purpose of Job for us is the application for us is not to be stuck in that same boat, to understand like, hey, there there's purpose in these things, even if we don't understand it. And God in all of his infinite wisdom is carrying out things that we don't understand um, and they go beyond our our own theology. Yeah, I think absolutely that is the case that we're very small parts in creation. There's there's broader plans. There's broader things afoot, and uh, we 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 don't necessarily have standing to bring accusations against God. It doesn't stop people throughout the Bible from bringing accusations against God. A lot of the Psalms of David are mm-hmm. accusations. Where where why are you hiding your face from me? God is a pretty common cry within the Psalms. So it doesn't right. stop people from doing the Job thing, but it does give us pause to think about the wider world around us during our own suffering yeah absolutely all right so we're, we're just over an hour and so that is our time frame cut off do you have any concluding thoughts about i think we did pretty well talking about purpose of elihu and different takes on how elihu functions in the larger narrative and uh, his his thought process. Do you have any uh, further thoughts that maybe we haven't covered on Elihu or or Job? I don't think so. I think that pretty much what I what I wanted to talk about. I, I think that uh, you know all of these characters. Um, you know, even though I believe this is real narrative and real history that it actually happened, I think that all of these narratives serve a purpose to where when you're reading through it, they kind of each character puts forward a, a possible argument that we might think of or that, that might relate to our own line of reasoning in regard to suffering, in regard to sin and God's justice. And it kind of really, I mean, there there are many chapters here and, and they just kind of go into detail on every different line of, of thought regarding why a person would suffer or why God would treat a person in a certain way. And it's a very beneficial book. It's been beneficial in my life. I think it's good for anyone that uh, either is suffering or hasn't suffered because you're going to suffer at some point. Uh, and it's it's a, a lot of good stuff to think through because it gives us uh, a good idea of what's going on in the world with, with wickedness. Um, even if the answer is not as satisfying as we would like to be in regard to, uh, you know, like all of these men think, like tit for tat, you know, eye for an eye, you do this, you get that, um, that it's not like that, that it can give us some peace in the midst of suffering because we know that there is an all-wise God that's bringing about his purposes, even if we can't understand them. And we can be confident that he is a, a God that that knows all of these things. He, he sees through the darkness. There's no way to hide any of our actions or our thoughts or our deeds from him. And because he knows that, we can we can be confident in his justice that our suffering isn't pointless or uh, unjust. It helps us to accept our situation. It also helps us, I think, to worship God in the midst of it. So, I think it also helps to tear down this common perception 
that retributive justice is a way in which God rules the world, <clears throat> that people get what they deserve, which not always happens. Right. Definitely not in the here and now, like you were saying earlier. Um, even, you know, we look at a man like Stalin, um, you know, we, the vast majority of, of Christians would hold that he's going to, either he is currently or he's going to receive just due punishment for all of his actions, even though he didn't see it during uh, his time here on earth. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not how it works on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, we look around us, look at our own nation. Uh, people are, yeah. are benefiting in, in massive ways from our earthly standard and, and they will probably never see justice uh, during this lifetime. Yeah, I definitely could see a lot of Job's arguments and, and I, empathize with them i don't know if i'm using empathize or sympathize correctly but one of the two i very much empathize with i show empathy for and sympathize maybe i do both uh, <laughs> sympathize is when you can put yourself in the shoes and empathize is where you could kind of understand along their reasoning and you can feel their emotions although you don't necessarily have access to that same situation so i'll say i both empathize empathize and sympathize with Job and the things he, that's that's actually why I love the book of Job the deep philosophical wrestling within the characters within Job and his understanding of justice righteousness his internal it's an existential crisis that mm -hmm. it's it's not just like a short like two paragraph uh, existential crisis it's it's right. pages and pages of text of thinking things through and venting frustration and walking through thought process. It's just incredibly interesting and captivating. My kids don't think so yet. Uh, maybe <laughs> maybe they'll get older and they'll, they'll appreciate Job for, for the what Job does and gives to us. But right. I'd like to thank you tonight for coming on and doing this Bible study with me. I, I've been meaning to get you on for a while because I value and respect your opinion. And I think we should probably do this again in the future. Yeah, I had a good time. It was fun. Excellent. Uh, uh, I guess we'll probably just close there. If anyone has questions or comments, put that down below in the YouTube or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for coming.